Good morning, and uh, for those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is John. I'm the pastor here, and we are continuing a series called Pair O Bulls. I know. It's super clever. It is, I know. And uh, we're talking about the parables that Jesus taught, which were stories that had meaning behind them. And specifically, we're focusing in in the series on the kingdom themes behind Jesus' parables. Because he was trying to teach in such a way that people who wanted to understand would, and people who didn't want to understand wouldn't. And so it's kind of a code that's going on here as Jesus teaches us about the kingdom. And when I say the kingdom, what I mean is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came here to earth. He lived without sin for roughly 33 years, died on the cross to pay for our sin, rose again shortly after that, returned to heaven, and he is sitting in heaven waiting, waiting, waiting like a dog on a leash, waiting to come back here and establish his kingdom here on earth. And had the Jews accepted him when he came the first time, he would have established his kingdom then, but they didn't. And so he returned to heaven and he's, we are preparing and getting ready and he's coming back one day. And when he comes back, he is going to establish a kingdom here on earth that we get to be a part of. And so we're talking in this series about how to live like then, now. That's what it's all about. And that's why Jesus, in many cases, was teaching parables and teaching what he was. And as we get into the parable today, I want to ask you a question that Jesus is going to help answer for us, of course, when we get to the story. Um, But I want to ask you a question. Maybe you've asked yourself this question before. If you haven't, now would be a good time. Here's the question. Do you want your life to matter? Anybody? Do you want your life to matter? I do. I don't want to be a blip on the radar. I don't want to show up here for however many years I'm here and be gone and nobody notices. And it it doesn't make any difference. Particularly, I don't want it. I want it to make a difference now. But more than that, I want to make to make a difference later. And so I've been really going through this process. And maybe you've done this in your your own life. If you haven't, if you haven't gone through this process, now would be a great time to start it. Of figuring out what you do in your life that actually matters and what doesn't matter. I want to spend a lot less time doing the things that don't matter, and I want to spend a lot more time doing the things that do matter. And so I've been wrestling through some stuff, okay? And, and one of my biggest struggles, I'm just going to, I got to be, I'm going to be honest with you today. Honesty is one of our core values. One of my biggest wastes of time is watching professional sports, okay? It is a big waste of time for me. Also fantasy football which I spend hours and hours and hours and hours on every single week, which might be an exaggeration, but it's not. And today, today, in fact, I'm playing Stephen West, who was serving you coffee. Those of you that came in and got coffee, I play Stephen West today. We are number one and number two in the league. I'll let you just assume who's number one. And so it's the battle. Today is the battle of the Titans. Okay? And it's a big deal to me, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. But I've spent more and more time over the past few weeks sitting there with my phone in my hands, checking scores or checking my lineup to see who's injured and who's doubtful and who might play or might not play or what timeshares are and how many carries is this player getting versus this player because touches matter and all that kind of stuff. And I've spent so much time. I've felt a, a few times over the past few weeks because I've been specifically focusing on this where I was looking and I'm like, this, this doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter really at all. Me winning or losing my fantasy football game is not going to change the world in any way, shape, or form. 
other than changing my personal attitude at home on Sunday, which is generally terrible. Because even when I win, and I am undefeated, but even when I win, and I'm two-time reigning champion, but even when I win, I still stress out all day long and think I'm going to lose. And if my players aren't playing the way they're supposed to be playing, I, is it right? Am I right, Jess? It is not good in our family. And, and if, even if I'm not, even if I'm winning at fantasy football, and I'm sure I'm going to win, inevitably the Bills are losing. So it's like I can't win, although this year they're doing pretty good too. They only have one loss. They might lose to the Dolphins today, but that's another story. All right, so I, I, find, I am finding that that is one area of my life that really doesn't matter. And uh, what I love is that a, a professional athlete who's on the field, what they do on the field may not make much of an eternal difference, but what they can gain from playing on that f- field means they could do a lot off the field. I, one, of my, one of my favorite moments in the NFL actually happened about four years, I think it was four years ago, three or four years ago, um, when Derek Carr, the quarterback for the Oakland Raiders, got a massive contract, the biggest NFL contract that had ever been given to anyone. Okay, it has not turned out well for them, but nevertheless, he got this massive contract, and after he signed the contract, he sat down for, a, uh, for a, uh, an interview, and they asked him about it, and they asked him how, how he felt about making whatever, millions, tens of millions of dollars for playing, for playing a game, which is kind of awesome. But he, he, uh, they asked him what he thought about it, and he said, I'm just so excited. This is going to help a lot of people. And it was clear And maybe God let him play well to get the contract and then he hasn't played well after that because God just wanted him to get the contract because of what he was going to do with it. And Derek Carr, from what I understand, has taken almost all of the money that he's made off of his his football contract and given it away to other people and organizations and things that are gonna help people. And, And so we need to factor through and think through in our life what things actually matter and what things don't matter. Because all of us naturally have this inbuilt desire to be significant, to be valuable, to accomplish something, for our life to mean something. And that's a good thing. And I want you to know that God built that into you. But the problem is that if we look for significance in things that will not actually give us significance, we will walk through our life very, very frustrated. Or worse yet, we will accomplish what is our definition of significance and it will not be significant. And we will waste our entire life on things and people will praise us and will lift us up and will say we're great and that we're a success and we've accomplished something and we'll get to the end of our life and realize we've actually accomplished nothing that is of, of eternal value. And we have this built-in desire to feel that and to want that and to desire that. And when Jesus was here and he was teaching, the people around him were no different. They all wanted to be significant. They were all thinking forward to the future. They all wanted their life to matter. And, and, and the different people around him went about that in different ways. The, the religious people that were around him, the, the term for them is Pharisees, if you're not familiar with that term. That's the Jewish religious leaders, particularly were really set on their life being significant and having power and authority. And, and, to, and so when they thought about the Messiah from the Old Testament that was prophesied, this king that was coming, They were expecting someone who was going to give them that kind of worldly significance, the kind of king that was going to put them in a power, a politically powerful position. And then when Jesus came and said, I'm that guy, they were like, no, you can't be that guy because you're not the guy who's going to be able to give us what it is we actually want. 
what we think is actually going to make us significant. And so most of the Pharisees, most of the religious leaders, not all, but most, rejected Jesus. His disciples, the people who he called to follow him, who were standing around, they wanted significance too. They, wanted, they, they looked at Jesus and, and they saw a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of Savior, and they were willing and able to follow him. But many of them were looking for positions too. There's a, there's a famous story where um, uh, uh, the mother of a couple of the disciples comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, hey, would you grant, when you're in your kingdom, would you grant that my sons would sit on your right and your left? And I'm sure they were over there like, you go, mom. Answer, is it going to be yes? Because if it's not, this is embarrassing. But, uh, and, and, and Jesus brushes them off and needs them to understand that's not, that's not the path that it's going. I actually, this is a, this is a personal belief. I, I, I don't know that this can be, um, can be verified in scripture. It's, it's an opinion. So hear, for, hear it for what it is. But I think this mentality is the reason that Judas betrayed Jesus. I think now, of course, Satan is the one who moved Judas to do what he did, but Satan always gets a foothold, okay? In order for Satan to have any impact in our life, we have to give him something to grab onto. And I think this is what Judas gave him to grab onto. I think that Judas wanted to be powerful. I think that Judas wanted to be the elite. I think he wanted to be the upper class. And when it became clear to him that Jesus was not going to rise into a position of political power and be the kind of person he was looking for, he was looking for an off-ramp. Okay, he was ready to jump ship, and when the Pharisees offered him 30 pieces of silver to do so, he was like, I'll take it. That's the best deal I've gotten so far. So I think that it's, that's at the root. It's the desire for worldly power as we know it today. It was all in the midst of them. And right before Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem for the last time, to embark on the week that would ultimately end in him being crucified, He's getting ready to go into Jerusalem, and he can feel, I, I think he can feel the momentum building amongst his disciples and the people that, his, his, you know, his closest disciples and the greater group that's following him. And they're thinking, this is it. He's going into Jerusalem for the Passover. This is when it's going to happen. This is when he's going to assert his authority. This is when he's going to overthrow the Romans. This is when he's going to overthrow the religious leaders. This is when he's going to finally sit on the throne and he's going to be the king that we've been waiting for. And they can see that moment coming and their, their, their blood is pumping and they're getting prepared. In, in a short amount of time, Jesus is going to be entering into Jerusalem and people are going to be hailing him as a king as he comes in and he's going to be riding on a donkey and they're going to be putting down palm branches in front of him. But before they get to that moment, Jesus needs to prepare his disciples and everybody who's listening. He needs to prepare them for what is about to happen. And he needs to get their mind right so they're thinking correctly about the kingdom and how they're supposed to pursue this and think about it. That brings us to our parable today. It's called the parable of the minas, M-I-N-A-S, the parable of the minas. And it's going to sound very familiar, very similar to many of you to a more famous parable, the parable of the talents. But it's different than that, and it was, it was told at a different time. So it's not the same as the parable of the talents, it's a different parable. And we'll talk about this a little bit in a, in a while, but when he tells the parable of the talents, he has a different audience than he has right now. Right now, he is speaking not only to his disciples, his followers, but the Pharisees are also there. So he has a mixed crowd, and he needs to tell the story in such a way that it applies to the entire crowd. Um, and so that's why one of the reasons this story is different than the talents. All right, minas are a sum of money. A mina was approximately um, three months' wages. So to put that, one mina 
today, the median income in America, median household income in America is $65,000. And so that means that one mean, a three-month salary, would be worth about $14,000. Okay, just to put that in perspective for today. As opposed to the parable of the talents, where a talent was worth potentially millions of dollars today. So it's a smaller sum of money. All right, so we're going to go to Luke chapter 19. All right, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. All right, they think that he's going in and he's going to become the king. He's, he's going in to be coronated and crowned the king. He knows that he's not because the Jewish leaders have rejected him fully and completely at this point. And so he knows he's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise again. He's going to go and then he'll be back, okay? So he knows that he's not going to bring the kingdom immediately, but that's what they think. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman... And as we go through here, by the way, for those of you that may be new to this or you're not familiar with the idea of parables, um, what you want to be, these are basically, or in some sense, analogies. Everything in the story means something. So specifically, as you hear the people, be thinking about who the people or the group might represent. All right, because I'm going to quiz you when we're done. You just want to be ready for that. Prepare for quizzes. It's a good idea. Teach my kids that. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So what you have is a person of noble birth who apparently has a birthright to a kingdom, but he has to go to another place in order to be coronated, to, be, to actually receive his kingdom, and then he's going to come back. So he's leaving and he'll return. Here's some keys to who these people might be. Okay, so the, the, uh, the uh, nobleman is going to leave and then return. So he called 10 of his servants and delivered to them 10 minas, that's one mina a piece, 14 grand a piece, and said to them, do business till I come. So he gives them a responsibility, right? This, this word um, to do business, it means to occupy yourself. Just get, you know, work with this. All right, do something with it while I'm gone. I'll be back. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. So what they did is that there was a, basically an uprising within the town. And what, after he left, they chose a group of people to go to wherever it was that he was going to receive his kingdom. And tell whoever it was that was supposed to give them the kingdom, we don't want this guy. All right. So it was a revolt, a revolution. They were trying to overthrow him and reject him as their king. Reject him as their leader. All right, verse 15. And that's treason, right? And that's treason. They are trying to overthrow their king. And then in verse 15, and so it was that when he returned, ye, that's bad news for them. When he had returned, having received the kingdom, so the uprising, of course, didn't work because he had the birthright. Having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. There was an expectation that while he was gone, they were going to be doing business and they would have something to show for it when he came back. So he called him in. Then, the first, then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. 10 times. That's, I don't know what this guy was doing. I would like to know. 
would be a good question to ask Jesus. I know it's, the, you know, it's a story, so there aren't really details. There isn't backstory to the story. It's only what's in the story. But I would like to know what he was doing because to get 10 times uh, my money it would be a great deal. So, uh, but he gets 10, and I want, to, I want to point out the wording here, and I think it's important, the words he, chose, he chooses. He says, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. Not, I have earned 10 minas. Your mina has earned 10 minas. He gives the credit for the multiplication of the money, not to himself, but to the master, which is a very important point for us to grasp. So he says that, and then uh, he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. That's that's pretty awesome. And I'm not sure this guy saw that coming. But this king has a new kingdom, and he has to dole out responsibility, and this guy has proved himself faithful. That's a big leap. He, t- he turned $14,000 into $140,000, and he gets re- authority over 10 cities. That seems like a big leap to me, and I'm sure he was surprised by that as well. But what a reward he got. And the second came in. Surely, I would imagine he knew what just happened, so he's excited walking in, right? And the second came saying, Master, says it the same way, look, your mina has earned five minas. That's great. He turned $14,000 into $70,000. And likewise, the master, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Incredible. And what happened was that he simply, both of them, the first two, simply proved that they could be trusted with what was given to them. And because they could be trusted with what was given to them, the master was fully confident, giving them more responsibility. It's amazing. And if you notice, he doesn't give them more money. He gives them responsibility. That's an important distinction here as well. All right, so they received the same amount. They were rewarded proportionally. Then another came, a third one, saying, Master... Here is your mina, which I've kept put away in a handkerchief. So didn't invest it, didn't try to, it didn't even try to earn anything on it, just stuck it in a napkin. Stuck in a napkin, hid it away, waited for him to come back. And then he says this, for I feared you, because you were an austere, that's a sharp or a stern man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So basically he said, I would have invested it, but I was scared. All right, I was just too scared of you. And so I kept it safe so I could give it back to you. But I didn't earn, didn't earn anything. And he said to him, this is the master. He said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? that at my coming I might have collected it with interest. See, what he's doing, he's calling out the servant for the lie that he just said. The servant did not stick the money in the napkin or in the handkerchief because he was afraid of the master. It's not why he did it. And the master here calls him out because he said, if that was actually true, you would have taken my money and you would have put it into a very stable investment that you know always returns, even if the return is low, and you would have earned me something but you didn't do that. So if the servant didn't stick the money in the handkerchief because he was afraid of the master, like he says, 
Why did he stick it in the handkerchief? I think it's a really good question that we don't get an answer to. Because I think the, the answer could be a lot of different things. He might have stuck it in the napkin. He might have stuck it in the handkerchief, frankly, because he was lazy. Because he didn't want to go out and work. He didn't, he didn't want to take it and put forth the effort to earn something for the master. He might have stuck it in the handkerchief because he thought, well, listen, if I go out there and I do all of this work trading and trying to barter and buy low and sell high and do all of that and eventually earn more money, what's the point? Because I'm just going to give it back to the master and he's going to keep it. So why put in all that hard work if I'm not going to get anything out of it? He, he might have stuck it away because he was just too busy. He had too much of his own stuff going on to worry about what was happening with the master's money. I don't know why he did it. But he did it. And because he did it, the consequences were rough. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one, or to give it to him who has 10 minas. Now everybody protests. They're like, wait, 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 hold on. Master, but they said to him, Master, he has 10 minas. Why did you give him, why did you take it from this one and give it to this guy? This guy's already got a bunch. Well, he says, for I say to you, that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Which is a little bit confusing, but basically what he's saying is, I'm giving it to the guy that has 10 because I can trust him with it. Because I can trust him with it and I can't trust you with it anymore. Because you haven't been faithful. And then in verse 27, he says, But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. This is drastic. I will tell you, Jesus is like the king of drastic statements. <laughs> when he's tell, particularly when he's telling parables or when he's teaching. Drastic statements. Now you might notice, as I did, as I read this, sorry about that middle school moment. As I read this, or as I read this, he gave 10 servants money, but only three of them came back to him. What happened to the other seven? I believe the other seven are in this group of people who said from the onset, we don't want this guy as our king. And I don't know what they did with the Mina, but the punishment was harsh for them. And so as we look at this story, as we look at the story, let's think about who everybody represents for a moment. All right, this is where the quiz is happening. You ready? There's a few people we, we look at. First, the nobleman. Does anybody want to guess who the nobleman is? Jesus. Good job. You're always safe guessing that. Okay? Like, if I ask a question and you say Jesus, even if you're wrong, it's cool. Okay? It's cool. Like, so that's fine. You know, that's, we, we call that the gray squirrel answer. You familiar with that idea? The gray squirrel? It's an old story. For those of you who don't know, you need to know this is an old, old church joke. All right? There was a Sunday school class. And uh, the teacher was teaching the Sunday school class and a whole group of kids. And he said, all right, everyone, who's the son of God? And they all said, Jesus. That's right. And he said, all right, and who died on the cross for our sins? And they all said, Jesus. And he said, and who rose again on the third day? And they all said, Jesus. And then he said, and what's gray and has a fluffy tail? 
And they all said, Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's just the answer. So anyway, you're always safe. We'll call that a gray squirrel answer. So you're always safe answering with that. You got the first one. Good job. All right, so here's a question. Who do the rebellious citizens represent? No. That is actually one case where that wasn't a good idea. Yeah. So <laughs> it does represent, in fact, Jeremy. Jeremy. No. No. <laughs> All right. So, all right. So, uh, who 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 are represented by the rebellious citizens? Unbelieving Israel. That's right. Unbelieving Israel. It's the 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 Jews at the time that did not accept him as savior, as well as the religious leaders. We give them a hard time, okay, because they're at the tip of the spear uh, of of the Jewish people. But it was more than just them that rejected Jesus Christ. So unbelieving Israel. All right, who is represented by the faithful servants? The first two that we meet, who does that represent? (laughs) Okay. The first two people are represented by believers who are faithful with what God gives to them and the responsibility he gives to them. We'll talk about the principles and what we're going to learn out of this, but it represents faithful believers who take the responsibility that they have from Jesus seriously. So then who does the unfaithful servant represent? A believer who wastes their life. That's right. A believer who has been blessed with all kinds of resources, all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of skills, all kinds of direction, all, all, of, all kinds of this, all kinds of influence, money, time, resources, all of this stuff that God gives to them. And instead of using them to build the kingdom for the master, they use it to build the kingdom for themselves. All right, that's who each of these people represent. Now, there's a few things that we can learn from this parable. I'm going to go through them. There's three of them. And if you want to take notes, these would be good things to write down. All right, the first thing I think we can take away from this parable, and it's the reason that I use this one instead of the parable of the talents. Because when Jesus taught the parable of the talents, which was also about managing money and him going away and then some managing faithfully and some not, when he told that parable, he had mostly his disciples near him. So he left out the part about the rebellious citizens. That wasn't included in that parable. This one is included because he had that crowd there. So it's an important application even today for us of this parable. And that's the first thing is that treason is fatal. Treason is fatal. Now, I, I, I got to be honest, I wanted to brush over this. <laughs> I didn't particularly want to talk about this. Jesus is saying there are people who don't want him, who don't want him as their king. And the reason they don't want him as their king is because they want to be king. It's the reason that people reject Jesus Christ, despite the fact that he was so kind and loving, gave his life for us, and rose again. The reason people reject him is because they don't want him to be their king. And at the time, it was unbelieving Israel, but even today, there are so many people that reject Jesus Christ. These people didn't want Jesus as their king because they didn't didn't want what it meant for their life. 
for him to lead them, for him to decide what they should or shouldn't do, for him to, to direct their life. They wanted, they wanted and, and we use this as a good word a lot, but they wanted to be free instead of having a king. But the thing is, the king was coming back whether they wanted him to or not. The king was coming back and he was going to be the king whether they recognized him or not. And the reality is, Every person on earth could reject Jesus if they want. It will not change the fact that he's coming back and that he's going to be king. And so we need to recognize that and we need to prepare for that because it's coming. Paul puts it this way when he writes to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. This is drastic. Here it's drastic. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. I don't like to talk about this. In fact, it gets me a little... I'm getting just a little choked up as, I, as I'm doing it because of how sad it is. And I generally like to be a good news person more than a bad news person. But in order for there to be bad news, there has to be good news. Or there, in order for there to be good news, there has to be bad news as well. The reality is that hell is real and people go there every single day. And they spend their eternity separated from the love of God, which is something that is very difficult for us to understand. Because even in this world where Satan does rule in this world right now, even in this world where there is so much evil and so much pain and so much difficulty, God is not completely gone. We still get to experience God's presence here on earth. And to be completely separated from that is something that I can't even fathom. And the, the only way that I can think to do it is to try and put myself in the mindset of the worst moment of my life when I felt the most alone, where I felt completely disconnected from God and completely disconnected from other people, and to know that that feeling I had in that moment when I was at my absolute worst was just tipping my toe in the ocean of what eternal separation from God is like. It's the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And people go there every single day. And so even when Jesus is telling this story and he says, bring to me these servants who have rejected me and slay them in my presence, even that is tame compared to what we will face if we reject Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you have never accepted him as your savior, you've never believed in him, I want you to know that until you do, that's what's waiting I don't want it for you. I hope you don't want it for you. And you don't have to do anything in order to cross the line. You don't have to pay a certain amount of money. You don't have to change a certain number of things in your life. You don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is to believe that Jesus died on the cross and paid for your sin. That's it. Believe that he paid for your sin on the cross. Believe that he rose again on the third day. That's it. And if you truly believe that he did that for you, you are a child of God. And you will not spend all of eternity separated from him. You will spend all of eternity 
with him. Now, that does not mean, however, that everybody who puts their faith in Christ receives the same reward or responsibility in the kingdom. Because just like Jesus tells in this story, you can recognize the king and you can hold on to that mina, but you can waste your entire life and receive no reward as a result. And so the first lesson is that treason is fatal. The second lesson is that apathy is wasteful. Apathy is wasteful. He recognizes the king, brings the mina back in the same form it, it was left with him, but he has nothing to show for it. Apathy, you know, we don't have to actively work against God in order to lose reward. We can lose reward simply by not working for him the way that he wants us to. Some people might, you know, you might take the mentality, well, I put my faith in Jesus, I'm forgiven, so it doesn't really matter. And one of the greatest lies I think that has been taught in the church is that everybody gets the same thing. That's not true at all. That, that everybody, that we're just, we're all going to die, we're going to go to heaven, everybody's going to be equal, and everything's going to be great for the rest of eternity. No. We need to hear this. We need to know this. Jesus teaches it over and over and over again, that there are levels of reward that we will receive. And listen, if we take the path of this second guy and we waste our entire life, when we get to heaven or when Christ returns and establishes, whether I go to meet him or he comes to meet me, whichever one happens first, if I've wasted my life, I'm going to regret it. I'm going to regret it. So he will say, well, no, but you're, but you're in heaven, and so there can't be feelings of regret. No. Is regret sinful? No. Is sadness sinful? No. Is loss sinful? Is remorse sinful? Is grief sinful? No. So the idea that those things won't be in all of eternity are foolish. To, emotions are not sinful. Sin is sinful. It's work, acting outside the, 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 uh, the will of God and the, the design of God that's sinful. And so one day... I am going to regret the mistakes that I've made and the reward that I lost because I wasted so much stupid time on fantasy football. <laughs> for heaven's sake, I can say that in this case and it not be any sort of sacrilege. For heaven's sake, why do I waste so much time? Think about the time that we've wasted. And I don't say that to make any of us feel bad right now about time we may have wasted, resources we may have wasted, how we may have done other things. But for us to know that, that we have time to change, that we have time to build up, to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not break in and steal, unlike treasures on earth that will all be gone one day. I, I, as I'm studying for messages, I always, uh, I always read other people's thoughts on the passage just because I might have it like really wrong. And so I read um, other people's thoughts on, on the scripture and passages and what they learn and what they've studied. Um, and Often those things are called commentaries. It's somebody's comment on scripture. And I've got a few go-tos. One that I read often is by a guy named Matthew Henry, and he lived many, 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 many moons ago. So he can be a little difficult to read. But one of the comments he had on this person particularly really stuck out to me. And he said this, It's all one to them whether the interests of Christ's kingdom sink or swim, go backward or forward. For their part, they'll take no care about it. No pains, be at no expense, run no hazard. Those are the servant, servants that lay up their pound in a napkin, 
who think it's enough to say that they have done no hurt in the world, but did no good. That really sat heavy with me. The thing is, I don't, I don't you know, we're trying to read between the lines of a story, and I know that's dangerous, but I just wonder what this guy was doing the whole time. What was he doing? Was he just sitting at home? I, I don't know. I don't think so. If I had to hazard a guess, and it's a guess, I'm sure he was busy. But he wasn't busy with the king's business. He was busy with his own. He wasn't concerned about the king's kingdom. He was concerned about his kingdom. And it is one of the greatest ways to waste our life is to simply be so busy and so distracted by what we have going on that we don't spend our time, our energy, our resources on the things that actually matter. Could that be you? Might you be this servant? I'll tell you, I find oftentimes I am. No shame in admitting it. Shame in staying in it. Maybe he thought the king wasn't coming back. How, how might, I wonder if he didn't know. I wonder if he didn't know what the king was going to do when he came back. If he had known that the king was handing out cities, might he have done something differently? How, how sad it is that there are so many Christians that don't understand that reward is waiting for faithfulness. But you know. Even if you didn't know before today, you know now that, that, that responsibility is waiting, that reward is waiting if we are faithful with what he's trusted us with. And he's given us so much. He's given us so much. He has given us time, lots of it. I know it never feels like we have enough, but that's because we stuff it full of a ton of things. He's given us a lot of time. He's given us energy and passion. He's given us giftedness. He's given us, listen, in the United States of America, he's given us a lot of money, a lot of money, and a lot of possessions. He's given us responsibility. He's given us influence. He's given us, many of you who work, he's given you a, a career or a job. Those of you that are in school, he's given you a place to get an education. He's given us friends and he's given us family. And he has just absolutely stuffed our life full of blessings. And we have to choose whether we are going to use them to earn a return for him and for his kingdom or whether we're going to use them for ourselves. Stick them in a napkin. And I'm not just talking about using one of those things or two of those things or three of those things. I mean using all of them and saying in my life, looking at every resource I have, everything he's trusted with me with and saying, am I using all of this for the glory of God? Because we can easily appease ourselves by using one or two of them that way and then justify not using the rest. But we are, we are proving ourselves faithful. Are you using all of those things in your life for God's business. Jesus said this just a couple of chapters earlier in Luke. He who's faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. 
And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, or that's wealth, unrighteous wealth, who will commit you to your trust, or who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? And listen, wherever you stand today on this, I don't want you to feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I want you to know that today things can change. Today you can say, I'm changing the way that I'm going to manage and handle everything that God has given to me. I'm going to change my perspective from my kingdom and my business to his kingdom and his business. And I want you to know that if you make that decision today and you follow through on it, it will pay off. Not for, this is not something that we do because we want to get something in some sort of selfish way, but because we want to be faithful to God. And the reward that we receive will be confirmation of the faithfulness that we have shown to God. And that's a beautiful thing. It's an act of worship. So we've said that treason is fatal, that apathy is wasteful. But here's the good news. Number three, faithfulness is profitable. It's important that we understand Christ is going to return. He is going to establish a kingdom here. You need to know it's as tangible as the life you're living right now. It's not some, it's not some weird place in the clouds where everybody's singing and there's harps and bright lights. It's, it's just like this in most ways. There will be chairs to sit in. There will, be, there will be sun to shine on us. There will be trees and birds. There will be houses. There will be governments. There will be judges. There will be all of that. But the difference is going to be a few things. One, for that kingdom, and we believe it's going to last for a thousand years, during that kingdom, it's often called the millennial kingdom. In the kingdom, Satan will be bound. So in our behavior, we have no excuse. We can't blame Satan anymore. There's no more. The devil made me do it. All right, he's bound. And Christ will sit on the throne and he will dole out responsibility to trustworthy people to judge and to reign and to rule. And we will have governments and authority like we have now, except they will be managed by Jesus and the people that please Jesus. And so we won't be able to say, well, the government made me do it anymore either. All of those excuses will be gone. But Christ will rule here and he will have a kingdom here and we have the opportunity to be a part of it. So who's he going to put in charge? The people he can trust. And how does he know if he can trust us? How we've handled things now. A phrase that I learned from Bill that I carry with me to remember this concept is that this, this, is, this life in some way is a test for us. All right, we are training for reigning We are training for reigning. We are preparing now for what is coming then. So Paul says in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Everything we put our hand, hand to can be God's business. Everything that we do in our life can build the kingdom if we are focused on doing that. So are you earning the greatest return for Jesus that you possibly can? Second Timothy, Paul writing to young pastor Timothy, Second Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. 
All right? So if you put your faith in Christ, you live with him. And additionally here, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That's a nice little summary of our parable right there in a couple of verses, isn't it? If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And if we deny him, he also will deny us. This is a concept that I have just just been learning to grasp in the last few years. As of a few years ago, I still had that mentality, I don't know what's going to happen then. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be good, and we're all going to be the same. And I've learned that's not true as I've studied Scripture. And I find that the more comfortable I get with this mentality, the more uncomfortable I get with the world around us and the waste that I see the waste that I see in our culture, the waste that I see in my own life, the waste I see in the lives of people I care about. And I think that we can just make a statement together that we're gonna do better than that. We're gonna do better than the culture around us does. We're gonna do better than we've done in the past. And we're gonna look forward to what's coming and the kingdom he's bringing. And we are gonna commit our entire lives to doing as much of his business with whatever time it is we have left here instead of doing our own business and building our own kingdoms. And if we make that commitment together, I'm telling you, if everybody in this room makes that commitment, this church is going to continue to do things people have not seen churches do in the past. And so I see great things ahead for us. I see great things ahead for you and hopefully great things ahead for me as well. All right, let's pray together. God, I thank you right now for for your love because we don't deserve any of this we're talking about. We can't, even though we're talking about earning reward, we understand that we can't earn your favor. We can't, we can't earn your love because we're sinful. Because we want to be king naturally, and so we sin and we turn our back on you, and we shouldn't get to spend all of eternity with you, but you love us enough, you're gracious enough to send your son to earth for us. Christ, you were, you were loving enough and merciful enough to give your life on the cross for us. You proved your power by rising again, and when we look at that, knowing that you paid for our sin that we can't earn salvation, that there's no amount of work or good deeds that we could possibly do to earn salvation, entry into the family, but that you gave that freely through your work on the cross. We are so thankful for that. And Jesus, I just wanna say for everyone here, we're ready for you to come back. We're ready for you to return anytime. We, We are waiting for it. Please come. Because we know that life in your kingdom is so much more than it is here. And all the pain and all the heartache and all the frustration that we go through because of sin in this world. We want to be rid of it. And you coming starts that process. And so we're waiting for you. And in the meantime, and I believe, Jesus, this is what you were trying to tell your disciples. Because they didn't know there was going to be a meantime, but there was. That in the meantime, because we are a child of God, our commitment God, is to be about your business. Our commitment is to begin living now like we will then. Our commitment is to prove ourselves faithful to you. Not because we selfishly want reward, 
but because we want you to look at us and we want you to say, well done. Well done. You were faithful in what I gave you. And now here's the responsibility. And I believe that when you do that, we'll know whatever your judgment is, is right. But we want to stand in front of you with our heads held high, with our chins up, proud of the life of faith that we lived. So first I would ask you, God, to, to, to search the depths of our heart and to show us where we're missing this. Because it's, it's going to be different for everybody in the room. So we need you through the power of the Spirit to show us where we are missing it. Is there an area of our life we've been keeping for ourselves and not using it for you? Is there an area of our life that, that we need to do more for you in? Show us. And as you show us, give us the confidence to step because it will require sacrifice. It will require changing the way that we look at our life. It will require the way, uh, changing the way that we look at the world. We understand that. And it's very difficult for us to see what you want us to do in many cases. Because we're sinful, because we're jaded, because we're indoctrinated into a culture, we need you to tear through all of that and show us and give us the boldness to actually do it, to take the risk, to go, to give, to say, to share, whatever it is you need us to do so that we can be as close to completely faithful to you as we can humanly be in the power of the Spirit. And we trust that your word is true and that when we dedicate our life to you, and even as things may improve around us, ultimately what we know is that those things are being stored up for later and that we have reward waiting for us. And we're thankful for that. We don't deserve it either. We thank you. So help us as we go. It's in your name we pray. Amen.